be uh, grateful. Dear Lord, we're thankful to be in your word, gathered together in the fellowship that your son has allowed us to have. We'd ask that we'd all be drawn closer to you, what you ask of us, what you have declared the world to be. Thank you for this morning. In your son's name, amen. I was talking to the missus a couple days ago, I think it was. We were talking about our shifting, what we're offering this semester, her good wife monthly thing, and the uh, wine, wisdom, and song. Um, and a lot of it is motivated, you know, you know, we've been in, again, Christian work for decades, and and primarily a teaching ministry, be it seminars or Bible studies or you know, preaching at church or such. And you want, you want people to be as eager, curious, wanting to know. It's not always the case. And um, you want to have the curiosity of the believers be really pronounced. Not that they agree with you, but they're curious, positively curious. I have this verse here on the left-hand side, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Someone might look at that and go, okay, no questions here, honest, pastor. It's that it somehow, you know the word questioning there probably means a more, you know, son, take out the garbage. Why? Now, that's not a deep philosophical question. He's not wanting to know the truth needs of the garbage and the, the nature of a landfill and a man's participation in his society. He wants a good reason why he should do it. He thinks there isn't one. That's why he questions. That's why it ties it to grumbling. We know there are different kinds of questioning. We see it throughout the ministry of Christ, the scribes and the Pharisees always questioning Jesus. You know the difference between someone being a questioning person and someone asking a question. Well, I want you to think about this. Which are you? Now the passage we're looking at, Matthew 21, is the passage with the triumphal entry right at the beginning. I cut, I cut that out. We have X amount of room on the page. And so I just I titled it, Triumphal Entry, verses 1 through 9. So it's a big moment. Right before the end of Jesus' life, he comes into Jerusalem riding on an ass, and people are laying down palm fronds and... In verse 10 it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? A question. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? Now most of us, we're here at church because, hopefully, we've all asked that question. Who is this? And we found out it was Jesus. In verses 12 through 18, 
There's this, the second cleansing of the temple. If you go through the Gospels, you'll notice he cleanses the temple twice where he, you know, overturns the tables and he didn't learn the first time. Right at the beginning of the ministry, he does it and, and towards the end. Um, this is verses 12 through 18. In verse 15, it says, When the chief priests, the scribes, saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Another question. And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast brought perfect praise. Now, a number of things for the person. There's a person who's not responding well. You'd like to think that you're like those children with clasping your pudgy hands together as you run along and after the donkey that Jesus is riding and you're watching him amazed as he drives out those evil capitalists from the temple. And you may or may not be. If you didn't have 2,000 years of Christendom behind you to, to, to give you a sense of security about your beliefs, because you know you can just go believe in Christianity, and you know there's a church, many churches in every town, and you can go have your selection, you can buy Bibles at Hastings, you can buy them online, you can go to any kind of, you know, it's like a smorgasbord of Christianity. But if you were stripped of all that, if you didn't have any of that, you just had this Jewish guy, looked probably like Woody Allen. This is Jesus. You don't ever think of Jesus as fat and looking like a Jew. Okay, two things you do. Never say he's thin. Be aware of that. I believe he was fat. But kind of having a little bit of an excessive ministry, a little self-absorbed, don't you think? Getting on a donkey, having everybody cheer him. The tri it's called the triumphal entry because it had that kind of effect. All of the city was stirred. This is the prophet Jesus. What would you think if someone came to town and started acting that way? Some logger from Deary. I'm just logger. And people from his church were laying down palm fronds as he rode in on a four-wheeler. You'd say, yeah, you're, you're, you're a little out of your depth, buddy. Don't you know what real religion is? And say he stood up and took on the powers that be. They'd get indignant. People do. Here's the youth. I, I want to point out something. I despise the youth. You know that. But the youth have a certain openness. Doesn't mean what the youth do is, is a guide to truth. The youth vote is not true because it's young. It's like Rousseau's noble savage. The, the savages aren't right because they're backward. Youth aren't correct because they're young. But they have something in their youth because out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast, hast brought perfect praise. I, I remember back in the Jesus people days 
having this, you know, there, there, you notice there are some young people's churches. We're not one of them. We're kind of an old people's church with young people in it. Uh, but there's some youth churches. They do youth things. They sing youth music and have youth leaders and such. Now, just because you're young doesn't make you correct. But it usually is the case that anyone who is older looks at anything the youth are reacting to spiritually and they blame it on their youth. They say it's inaccurate because it is young. It is not always so. Perfect praise was coming out before Jesus. The next situation. He curses the fig tree. If you look at this section in the three synoptic gospels, this wasn't the time for figs. He walks up to the tree looking for a fig. It doesn't have figs on it, and it says explicitly because it wasn't the time for figs. He curses the fig tree, it dies. And you get start getting, what kind of religion have I gotten into? Kind of a cult leader rides in on a donkey. All the young people like it. None of the established religious leaders are approving of it. And then he does something wacky like this. And then he makes this promise at the end of it. Verse 22 of chapter 21 of Matthew. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Oh man, I wish he wouldn't say things like that. Don't you wish he wouldn't say things like that? Now this is just a series of events that could very naturally put us in the role of the scribes and the Pharisees. Be a little bit, you know, not, we're not uptight. We're just conscious that you need to be a little bit more circumspect about your religious creations and who's following you and what kind of educational background you should have to be taken, you know, rightly. And when he entered the temple, this is the verse I wanted to start with. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? By what and who gave it to you? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. What I wanted to lay in front of you today is the need for you to find out what kind of questioner you are. All questions are not bad, all questions are not good. The Lord knows that their question is probably bad, and his question is a good question, because it's going to find out if their question is bad. And all questions shouldn't be answered, because Jesus says, I'm not going to answer it if you don't tell me an answer. I'm not going to tell you. Because questioning represents not an interest in the answer, but it's a revelation of who you are. The baptism of John, this is the Lord speaking. Whence was it? From heaven 
or from men? That's the question. Was John the Baptist from God or just a religious cultural phenomenon? And they argued with one another. If we say, from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from men, we're afraid of the multitude, for all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So there. Not everyone who goes to Christ with a question gets an answer. Because not everyone who goes to Christ with a question deserves an answer. We need to find out what kind of questioner we are. Now what's wrong with what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing here? Or the chief priests in this case and the elders? It is obvious that their willingness to be silent and not get an answer is out of desire not to lose in the answer in any way. If I say he's from heaven, he will say, why didn't we believe him? If we say from men, everybody's going to turn against us. Won't be good PR. The problem on both ends of that is what the chief priests and the elders were thinking of first and foremost, the chief priests and the elders. That is the nature of all questioning. Not questions, all questioning. It is a patently false or insincere question mark at the end of a phrase by which you challenge that which threatens you to try to stop that which threatens you, to embarrass that which threatens you. By what authority are you doing this? And you could ask that question as a questioning, trying to stop Jesus. Who said you could do this is what you mean? Who died and made you the Son of God? Or you could want to know, you would want to know, who, where are you from? You see that different kinds of conversations go on in the Gospels about how the question is asked. Sometimes it's a little bit, you know, pushbacky, you know, that Jesus. At the same time, they're still being drawn to Christ. But you've got to find out what kind of questions you ask. Because down underneath the questions you ask is a character. And the character is... You're trying to design your life the way you want it. Thank you very much, including your religious aspects of it. And anything that comes from somebody else that sounds completely untenable, anything you ask, you will receive if you have faith. Think of all the really difficult passages you do not like. And you know there are some. Things that, well, you can't seriously mean that, and then fill in the blank. Well, your world might not just be built by you, you know, you and your fellow travelers. It might be built by the whole culture. You don't want to be left outside your actual religion that is drawn up by the zeitgeist of the, of, of, of the current zeitgeist, and you'll have a, and, and you, you want to please your masters in that area, so you have to question 
Oh, what is the usual one? Over the years, you hear, hear so many. Uh, it's always, oh, the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, the God is so cruel. In the Old Testament, right? And your point is, well, I don't like him being cruel. And so, big whoop, um, you don't like the living God being cruel. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Having your oar, putting it in. You and your society of post-World War I sad sacks who cannot stand up and understand that life is futile and people die. Things happen. Wars go down. But I don't like my religion being, I don't care. You're not God. And at some point you've got to say, you're not God. And it doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you think. That's the whole point. You've got to repent of what you think. If what you think is wrong. But I, I think that, you know, the Geneva Convention, shut up. The Geneva Convention, on one hand. The living God on the other. But for some people, the Geneva Convention is a greater standard of ethics and righteousness of the living God. You've got to choose. Because when you hear, if you're some sort of modern that doesn't like the way it's written, doesn't like the way God shows up, you're going to enter the questioning of Jesus, the questioning of this faith, with that kind of cynical doubter thing going on. But don't be, you're, you're, not, you're, not, a, you're not innocent. You're finding out what kind of questioner you are. But oddly enough, you don't ask your current gods the same sort of doubting questions now, do you? I told this to a young lady who was falling away from the faith that we knew pretty well, and she had all these doubts, you know. And we have a doubter, you know, it's probably not doubt. You don't have a, I really, uh, you know, I was wondering about the innocent man in Africa. That's really given me some real sleepless nights. Oh, sure it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you care a lot about the innocent man in Africa. And why do they always come up with the same dang question? They go to a special school in Iowa, school for non-Christians. We always ask them about where did Cain get his wife and the innocent man in Africa. I said to her, uh, you do know that agnosticism or atheism, denial, serving the flesh, is also subject to doubt and questions. And if you were truly a cynic, if you were truly a doubter, you wouldn't be giving them a free pass as you question Jesus Christ. You'd be looking at agnosticism going, and what claims does it have? How do we know it's true? No, they run comfortably over to agnosticism and they make a nice little seat for themselves and they sit down and no questions asked because, dear Jesus, they get to do what they want to do. That's the great benefit of a believing in the agnostic God or the atheistic. They get to do what you want to do. Oh, some people have managed it inside Christendom where they designed a Christianity that, that kind of shoves away the scriptures at certain points. When God says something, they don't believe it. Because it's much more comfortable 
to believe what your current gods are saying. And why do we trust them? You ever hear that? Well, you know, you look at the book of Genesis and uh, written by men thousands of years ago. And what makes what you're believing true? Well, scientists have clipboards. And I think that makes them very smart. Written by men. So the idea that being written by men falsifies what they say. Now, you might not agree with me on a lot of things in the scripture. God bless you. But ask the right kind of questions. You don't want to find out what suits you. You need to find out what's true. When you run across the paradoxes, or the confusions, or the contradictions in the scriptures, unacceptable statements, what do you do? You can ask a question, or you can find it as a relief. Finally, I get to... I get to point at the Bible, I get to point at God and say, see, you don't have anything worked out. That means I can go do what I want to do. You still want to be in control of your religion. You might like Jesus. You might want to have Jesus be a part of it. You want to say that, you, know, you, you read some, you know, I read some liberal blogs, Christian evangelical liberal blogs. It's hard on my stomach, but... Uh, they really, they really want to claim everything about Christ and the Gospels all their own, you know. No offense if you're liberal. But it's just, you know, they, they want to keep what their culture has told them to keep. They look at St. Paul and they go, he was too affected by their culture, his culture. You say, the only thing we're sure of, we know you differ with Paul, we got that. The only thing we know is that you are affected by yours. We don't know that he was affected by his. We don't have any information regarding the culture and what's affecting and how affected Paul was. We do know you are bowing down to the altar of your culture. That's why you're arguing with Paul in the first place. So ask the questions, yes. But if you don't ask it rightly, you're going to get dis. Not what's, the word dis isn't part of it. Uh, you aren't going to get answered. What do you think? Verse 28. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. John Hill brought this parable up the other night. And maybe it was in the back of my mind when I was looking for the passage. And he answered, I will not. And afterward he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe. As you realize that this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth and Galilee, as you realize that the message of the gospel is for you and your sins, and as you get converted, 
the way we shape our, the way we drive our questioning mind is kind of crucial. That the repentant heart is more ready for the kingdom than those who resisted it. It's not saying that harlots and tax collectors, as harlots and tax collectors, is what you want your church filled with. They're supposed to give up being whores and give up being tax collectors. That's one for you, Frank. The IRS, may their name be blotted out. But they believed and repented. They came to it. They said, no, sir, to God, and then went and did it. Instead of saying, yes, sir, and not doing it. This is a struggle to understand who is the Lord for you. How do you answer this claim of the divine in your life? This is a religion that involves a God. And a God is bigger than you, quite a bit. Especially when you're dealing with the triune, infinite, uncreated deity, not some Apollo. I've been thinking about this because of something I keep reminding you that my father told me, or says to me. He always asks, what does it say? Do you believe what it says? Will you do what it says? <laughs> and we're all big on studying Bible studies, getting what does it say? We argue with each other about what does it say? We claim we believe what it says. That's because that's easy. First two steps are pretty easy. What does it say? Do you believe what it says? Some of you may struggle on the belief part at some point because you've got some other God you're bowing down to and he's telling you contrary to it, but you can work that out. If you, to do what it says is a different matter. But Lord, you don't understand. They don't, he slapped me on one cheek. Well, I said if Ben slaps you on one cheek, you turn to him again the other. Yes, I understood that. I know what it says. Do you believe I'm right when it says that? Yes, I do. But you don't seem to understand, Lord. He slapped me on one cheek. Because you don't understand how angry I get when someone slaps me. Yeah, I do understand how angry you get. That's why I told you to turn to him again the other. But you don't understand, Lord. It's the American way. America. America. We're supposed to fight with people. We don't get along well with others. Why won't you do it? You desperately want to be in charge of your own life. You desperately want your culture to be in charge of your own life. You desperately want your ethnic group. I'm a Scotsman, and we're better than you guys. Okay? Just saying. We know that from watching all of the world history. We want to be part of everything except the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he says something, we're not thankful that we just got a word from the Lord about how to think about things. I'd rather think like a Scotsman, thank you very much. The religion that came out of Scotland, not a pleasant one. Okay? We are not to be trusted with religion. 
because it functions oddly very similarly to the clans. Okay? Thank God for what he says. Don't, don't worry about doing it yet. You've got to worry about being thankful for what he says. Because you're kind of really thankful that you're a Scot. You're kind of really thankful that you're an American. You're kind of really thankful that, you, that you're a Seahawks fan. You're kind of really thankful about everything else that is dictating you happily, and you happily go... Oh, I used to have this discussion with uh, some school people who were trying to figure out how to get their students to wear uniforms in Christian schools. I used to speak at conferences on education. And um, I said, well, you just have to have school be something that they really admire. Look at a baseball player. Dumbest sport on the planet, one. Dying sport, Paul, Mark. Dying sport. Middle-aged men who have too much weight around the middle, wearing funny clown-like clothes. But boy, are they proud. You can get a young kid of 14 out on a baseball diamond, and he'll wear those little plus fours and stirrup socks like he wasn't from Mars. But he looks like he's from Mars. But he's thrilled because he's thankful for being on the team, and he loves the sport of baseball. You know, if you're thankful, are you more thankful that you're French or Scots or a baseball player or an American or a whatever it is you are than you are being one of the Lord's own? Thank him. He said, turn the other cheek. Spend some time thanking him. Become thankful about the answers you get from God because the big determination between being a questioner of the living God, someone who is regularly setting aside the things God says because you have questioned him and found him wanting, he doesn't adapt himself to your life adequately. And being a questioning person that is seeking for truth is the person who's looking for truth, knows truth when they find it, and they're grateful they found it. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to tenants, and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. When the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another, again he sent other servants, more than the first, and he did the same to them. Afterward he sent his son, to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. You can see what this is tracking along with. You know enough of the Bible to realize Jesus was killed, right? You know that? Okay, got it. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Question, right? Nice question. What will he do? What will he do to those tenants? Those tenants who did not respond well to the owner's ambassador's son. They said to him, they could understand it, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That's what will happen. 
The Lord is looking for those, the Lord of this vineyard, is looking for those who will produce the fruits of the vineyard that he planted. This is God's world. Christianity is the kingdom of God. He owns it. He decides how you will think in it. And if you are not going to think in it, oh, you can play tenant all you want, and you could abuse all those who think like the Lord all you want. But the Lord will come at some day and deal with it. Put them to a miserable death. Everybody understands it. If I drew it in some other illustration like this parable, you know perfectly well what you would do to such people who didn't if you owned an apartment house and you had rented it out to students and, and you kept sending missives back about how you wanted the garbage kept or the, the walls not dealt with and they come and everybody you send, they start roughing up. Well, finally you show up with a SWAT team and a judicious uh, application of billy clubs. And you feel good about it while it's happening. Okay, you know, you wade in among them, you got riot gear on, you got a truncheon, that's a good word. Sounds like it hurts, doesn't it? Truncheon. They got that whoop whoop to it, you know, that lead weight in the top. And, and you got this riot gear, and you got these college students who didn't know any better, and they were painting graffiti on the side of your apartment complex. And you're back now. They've already sent a couple of your employees to the hospital. And you have a warrant. I mean, it's all legal what you're doing. And you get, to have, you get to beat them into a jelly. And feel righteous in the moment. Because we all know that is. Well, this is the Lord's world. This is his kingdom. This church does not belong to all souls. You belong to Jesus Christ. We are just accidentally meeting together because we like the building, we like each other, and this church doesn't require too much. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you never read that scripture? Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. The reason you need to ask yourself what kind of questioner you are is do you have questions of God that ask him to provide truth to you and you bow the knee and say, yes, my Lord, when he gives it to you? Or are you the kind of questioner that finds all of his statements not playing well with the kind of religion you would like to establish? He's going to take it away from you and give it to somebody who pursues God. In the Luke account, there's two levels of punishment. Right after that verse, in Luke 20, it says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Hmm. What's that? It seems like both of those are kind of negative. Yeah. There's a point in time in your life, by your choice, you choose what kind of questioner you are. Does God always have to prove himself to you? Does God always have to 
straighten up and fly right in order to be a part of your religion? That stone you will stumble on. You will be broken in pieces. You, will, you, you are doing the stumbling. It's your moves. But someday also he returns. And he will crush it. Your will will still be broken up. You'll still be stumbling and, and busted. But he comes a time when he will judge and he will crush. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Didn't have a question about that. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Now, the basic idea that I'd like you to consider, I'd like you to consider it not just because I'm having this wine, wisdom, and song question and thing that you get to come to and ask this thing, but I'm going to start processing what you have to know and desire to know of God and what is the mood with which you desire to know it. Are you protecting you? Or do you want to ask an honest question? And the honesty of the question is, is his answer more important to you than your ignorance? It's a simple. Is his answer more important to you than your ignorance? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You've supplied us with so much wisdom over the centuries in your word and fellow believers who have studied it and people who have gone before us, faithful sons of your kingdom, Lord, we ask that we would be faithful, that we would be the kind of people who are not protecting the way we want it, but are seeking for the way you want it. Lord, help us be the kind of people who rejoice and thank, express thanksgiving when we hear your answers and know that what we leave behind is our own ignorance. Bless this week in your son's name. Amen.